second lesson comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. Hear the word of the Lord. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I consider myself to be an optimist. And most of the time, I tend to operate that way, uh, perhaps even to a fault. I think that optimism can be great about some things. It has a can-do attitude, and it sees challenges as opportunities, and it tends to assume the best of everyone. And in general, it's a nice approach to life. But here is what I have learned about optimism. It doesn't always square up with reality. The reality is that sometimes life is really, really hard. Things don't add up when they should. People die too young. Addicted people stay addicted. Doctors make mistakes. Crane operators do everything that they can and still the cranes fall. Walmart sells guns. Police don't apprehend suspects. And parents and families are not perfect. In fact, more often than we would like to admit, we are capable of inflicting damage. Sometimes the reality is, is that it is just not a pretty picture. And as people who believe a good God, we can sometimes think that this means that that's something that we have to forget as we start to think about the gospel. And sometimes, without realizing it, we end up falling into a world where we live into the gospel according to the sound of music, which is that when God closes a door, he always opens a window. By the way, that's not in the Bible. (laughs) And maybe sometimes this pans out, but not always. There are things that don't add up. And even with all the effort and the cheerleading and the strong arming that we have the capacity to do, we often can't change that which we would most like to see changed. And that is okay. 
Because we as people of faith, we cannot confuse optimism and progress with the message of faith. We cannot confuse optimism and progress with the message of faith and the gospel. We can see connections, and believe me, there are plenty of connections where these two things come together. We can see intersections, and there are plenty of intersections where these two perspectives come together, but we cannot conflate them and begin to believe that they are one and the same thing because the reality is that they are not. And in fact, as Christians, we can never lose sight of one very essential thing about our faith, and that is that our faith is no stranger to the context of suffering. Our faith is no stranger to the context of suffering. Take the Gospel of John, that which we've been spending a little bit of time and from which we read our lesson today. The Gospel of John is the latest Gospel that was written. It probably originates sometime at the end of the first century, right around to the 80 or 90 AD mark. And a basic fact to remember that we should have kind of in our minds from the different sermons and series that we've been doing is that the later that we get into the first century, the more dangerous it becomes for the people of faith. The more prickly their lives become, the more hard their lives become. Things become very, very challenging for them because they become less and less welcome in the synagogues for a variety of reasons. But keep in mind that for the first Christians, at least those in the Palestine area, the synagogues is their, are their home turf. That's the place where they feel the most comfortable. So they're, in a sense, being turned out of their homes. Okay? In addition to that, that's one piece of the story. In addition to that, as time goes on and on and on, they become less and less invisible to the empire. Rome starts to notice them. The empire starts to pay attention to them. So not only do they sort of have a place, not only do they not have a place where they can safely go, but they also are becoming sort of on the radar of the imperialism that's all around them. So they're more and more targeted. And so the further that we get into the first century, we need to always understand that their very life and livelihood, the thread of the fabric of their being that they know to be trustworthy, this begins to crumble in on them. It begins to crumble in on them. This is not a gospel that is written to a people that have everything together. This is a gospel that is written to people who are suffering and who are trying to make sense of the story that they are living. So it becomes essential that as these later gospels are written, that they not only include stories from Jesus' life, so if we think about the gospel of Mark, we'll see a lot of stories about the life of Jesus, but we won't see a lot of interpretation about what that means move later into the Gospel of John, you have stories about Jesus' life, but in addition to that, you always have some interpretation about what that means, about how it impacts the community. And the reason for that is because it's written to a community that is suffering and is trying to figure out how to make sense. They're living on the margins with no place to go, no place to call home, no if we build it, it will come, sort of a future. 
And so it's in Gospels like these that what is written to the community is what they have to turn to when everything else begins to unravel. And the text today is right on point for this. Right on point. Because if you look before the story that we just read, so right ahead of verse 31, what you see is this. You have the foretelling of the betrayal of Judas, right? You have the piece where Jesus says, the person that dips their hand into the bowl is one who will betray me. And if you look right after this story, you have the foretelling of the denial of Peter. When Peter says, I'll go anywhere with you, and Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, before the cock crows three times, you will have denied me. Okay? And right in the middle of these two stories, we have Jesus not sharing a hallmark moment, not offering a guidepost reflection, so believe me, we all have time and space for those, you know, in a certain way, but in this particular instance, we have a real tooth and nail image of the way of the future. You see, it is easy to love people in the wake of optimism, isn't it? When we're out at night, having a dinner party, a few drinks and the right music, the right people, we can all exude the vibe of love. But what about in a town hall meeting? What about in the comment threads of social media? What about in Twitter in and of itself? You see, these are hard times to love. They're hard times to love. And so right here, right in the ugliness of it all, right in the reality of all of these different complex bits and pieces, Jesus offers us a very gritty expression of the gospel, tooth and nail. Where I'm going, he says, putting out that boundary mark, you are not going to be able to come. And so, because I'm not going to be with you anymore, he's saying, I want to give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so stamped right here in the heart of the story of Jesus, of his literal blood, sweat, and tears, is his commandment for us to be in community with each other. Not his request, but his commandment. To love one another. To extend ourselves to one another. In fact, I want to notice that this phrase, one another, occurs in John more than in any other gospel. Because it is only in the gospel of John that the Christian community really begins to figure out for itself, how will you start to live when everything falls apart? How will you start to live when these stories that you've been sharing and that you've been following become the stories not that lead you into victory, but the stories that actually lead you into suffering? How will you live then? And Jesus offers a phrase, one another. You'll live by one another. Eight times he says it in the Gospel of John. Eight times 
just in this section. In the whole Gospel of Mark and in all of the other Gospels, you know how many times we have the phrase one another? No more than three or four. But here in the Gospel of John, eight. Because this is a community that's trying to figure it out. And his word choice for love, it's not the one that he uses later when he's talking to Peter. It's, it's not the easy one. It's not the friendship one. It's the one agape, the one that also gets translated. If you have an older Bible, you'll be familiar with this word because it's translated charity, right? Charity is that word that comes from Greek, charos, which means gift, giving, the giving of oneself. Okay, not just that friendly sort of having somebody over when it's convenient, but the giving of oneself, self-giving, self-offering. And I want to just say a word about self-giving in our culture today. And that is that we can often think that self-giving means self-depletion. That it means that we sort of have to be silent and not show up so that the other person has the opportunity to be present. Or it can mean self-denial. That's at least how we can understand it. And I want to clarify that there is a difference between self-depletion and self-giving. There's a difference between self-depletion, which means the emptying of oneself, and self-giving, which means that there is an abundance that is going on within, and you have the opportunity to give some of that abundance away for free. But it's out of the abundance that we give. That's what self-giving is, and that's what it is that Jesus is calling his community. Now, how, it is, how is it that I can say this? I want you to hang in there with me for just a few more minutes. We're going to do a little bit of thinking that we're not used to doing, but I want to kind of open up an idea for you that might be unfamiliar, so if you don't get it, it's okay, but just try to hang in there for a few more minutes, okay? Because Jesus in this story actually offers us a clue about what love should look like. And it's in those first few verses that we read, and it's very confusing. It's very confusing. It's those verses about glory. And if you read those verses again, it's 31 basically to 32. He talks about this whole idea of the glory going from the Father to the Son of the glory being exchanged between two places. He takes two whole sentences to talk about this idea. What on earth is the point of that? What is going on there? And the point, as the later community started to understand, is that Jesus is giving us a picture, a snapshot, about what the heart of God is all about. Jesus is helping us to understand that what is happening to him is the same thing that has happened in the heart of God. This glory, this weight of being that Jesus has taken on is now also going into the very heart of God and God will carry that weight. And there is going to be a mutual exchange between these two persons about with a suffering that's going to unfold. It's going to be mutual. There's going to be sharing. 
Now, why does that matter? Because what Jesus is saying is that what is happening in the heart of God is not transactional, transactional, it is mutual. It's not about an exchange of power, but it's about a sharing of love. And as we get this picture about what is going on within the heart of God, within the very heart of the creator of the universe, within the very heart of the one who created and put this whole sort of cosmos into being, what John is doing is giving us a snapshot and saying mutual love exists within that Godhead. And you are invited into that kind of relationship with one another. You are invited into a relationship that is not about self-depletion, but is about self-giving, because it comes through abundance. And abundance can only be born out of love. And that is why John offers us those first two sentences. Because it's through the idea of what is happening with God that then we get the picture of what it means to be community. You see, those things don't happen in isolation. They're connected. Sounds optimistic. Let's not forget that the next thing that's going to happen within the heart of God, from this text at least, is death and suffering. So this picture, it isn't born out of sort of the perfect world. It's born out of the reality and the mutual sharing that exists within that space. Because friends, we don't have it all together. We never will. Bad things are going to happen in our lives and in the lives of those that we love. But as people of the resurrection, we have the opportunity to come back to the idea that we are invited to be people of one another. Jesus cannot force that. He can offer it. And now it's up to the disciples to figure it out. How do we live as people of one another? Invited to reflect the very heart of God. Let's pray. Lord, we do not know how to do this, but we ask that by your spirit you would show us and illuminate and tell us. By your grace, show us the next step. In your name, amen.